This is number five, and it is entitled, Christ the Atonement. In this presentation, we will discuss one of the most important factors of the Christian life that has to do with our own conversion. Every professed Christian should experience peace of mind. This is indeed the longing of our hearts, and I trust that you are not objecting to the simplicity of these presentations, for I am endeavoring to make them so simple that even a child can understand. The sanctuary is a cardinal doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It is a pillar of our faith. In fact, it is the very foundation that is being attacked by new theology. And if we do not understand the purpose of the sanctuary, we shall be misled by those who would silence this great truth. Some preachers today make the sanctuary so complicated by using uncommon theological terms and by spending hours in interesting but unimportant details that these extras blur the great sanctuary truth. <clears throat> in my ministry, I have discovered many persons that are confused over the sanctuary and its meaning. But if we would only consider that within the sanctuary, God is trying to illustrate to his people the mechanism and the steps that must be accomplished in our conversion and reconciliation. Then our understanding of the sanctuary teachings will not seem to be com complicated. Now the basis of this study is found in Acts the third chapter and verse 19. It reads like this, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. When? When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. In our previous studies, we have been considering God's problem of separating sin from the sinner. And we have learned that a sinner in the Old Testament times could repent of his sin by taking a lamb and by placing his hands upon its head in confession, thus transferring his sin to the lamb. But since the law demands death for the penalty of the sin, the lamb must die at the hand of the sinner. The shed blood, which represents the life of the victim, now bears the sin of the sinner and is carried by the priest within the sanctuary.
But the problem of sin is not settled yet. True, sin has been transferred from the sinner and has been carried into the sanctuary by means of the blood of the victim. But man can never be fully satisfied and have unquestioned peace of mind until he knows that those sins have been blotted out permanently by God. So this is why we must carefully study to see what takes place within the sanctuary concerning the sins which have been brought in by virtue of the blood. We are considering these steps in our conversion. You will immediately recognize that there are two apartments within the sanctuary, namely the holy and the most holy. There is a different work that is performed in each by the priest. Please remember that the earthly sanctuary was a miniature of the heavenly sanctuary. And what took place in the earthly sanctuary illustrates for us what Christ, our great high priest, is now doing for us in the heavenly sanctuary. Paul tells us of this very clearly in the book of Hebrews. He says that the work of the priests who served in the ancient sanctuary, according to Hebrews 8 and verse 5, I am reading, who serve unto the example and the shadow of heavenly things. So, by looking at the earthly sanctuary, we can learn much about the heavenly sanctuary. Notice in the next chapter how Paul explains the work done in these two apartments of the sanctuary. I am reading from Hebrews 9 and verses 6 and 7. And when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once, every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Now, how many apartments were there? Two. Who ministered in the first apartment? The priest. How often? Every day. Who went into the most holy place? Only the high priest. How often? Only once a year. And what did he take with him? He took blood, the atoning blood. Did you notice the words in that scripture of Hebrews that we just read, that when he came, not without blood? You see, the path into the sanctuary is a blood-stained path. There is blood on the horns of the brazen altar. There is blood on the golden altar. There is blood on the mercy seat. The blood always represents the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. 
This is beautifully brought out in Great Controversy 418. Christ's intercession is that of a pierced and broken body, of a spotless life, the wounded hands, the pierced side, the marred feet, plead for a fallen man whose redemption was purchased at such infinite cost. Now, as we look in this earthly sanctuary, we find that it must be purified or cleansed, and this was done with the blood of animals. But what about the heavenly sanctuary? The book of Hebrews states that the heavenly things must be purified with a, quote, better sacrifice, unquote. This refers to the sacrifice, of course, of Jesus Christ in the shedding of his blood. Again, in Great Controversy 417, the cleansing both in the typical and in the real service must be accomplished with blood, in the former with the blood of animals, in the latter with the blood of Christ. Paul states as the reason why this cleansing must be performed with blood is that without shedding of blood, there is no remission. And what is remission? He continues, remission or putting away of sin is the work to be accomplished. So thus we read in Hebrews 9, 23 and 24, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Did you catch those last beautiful words? To appear in the presence of God for us? Isn't that wonderful? Jesus was not just loaned to us some 2,000 years ago. Jesus was given to us as a gift forever. And when he returned to heaven, he did so as our brother to personally present us to his Father. On entering heaven, Christ carried the sins of the world by the virtue of his blood into the first apartment of the heavenly sanctuary. We shall learn in our next study that the Lord represented his people there for some 1,810 years in the first apartment. Just as the priest in the sanctuary of old went in to the sanctuary every day. But now note a change. Once a year the high priest went in into the second apartment, so Christ 
would likewise enter into the second apartment in the year 1844. Now, I hope you are following me carefully. You see, I'm asking a question. How often did the high priest go into the second apartment? Only once a year. Will Jesus Christ do this every year? No, absolutely not. And why not? Because he does this only once at the end time. And he stays in this apartment until his work is completed. Notice the words in Hebrews 9.26. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself you know that expression the end of the world refers to the very last days before christ comes the second time and so the question what is his purpose in entering the most holy apartment at the end of time? Well, let's let the scripture give the answer. It says, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now that's a very strong term used in the scriptures here. Quote, to put away, unquote. This term is used in the Bible to describe a man who divorces his wife. It is said of such a man, it is said to put away his wife. And so you see, Jesus is in the business of divorcing sin from his people in this end time. In fact, there is no other solution for this troubled world. No peace conferences will ever permanently succeed. No new world order of the United Nations will be able to get rid of the sin problem. This problem of sin will never finally be solved until it is solved in the sanctuary. And this final eradication of sin is now taking place in the end time. Now, in the second apartment within the heavenly sanctuary. In Great Controversy 480, I read, At the termination of the 2300 days in 1844, our great high priest entered the Holy of Holies and there appeared in the presence of God. What for? To perform the work of investigative judgment and to make an atonement for all who are shown to be entitled to its benefits. This is said to be the great day of final atonement. Then reading further on, on page 422, at the termination of 2300 days in 1844, 
Christ entered the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary to perform the closing work of atonement preparatory to his coming. On 421, I read, This is the service which began when the 2300 days ended. At that time, as foretold by Daniel the prophet, our high priest entered the Most Holy to perform the last division of his solemn work to cleanse the sanctuary. And then I found in Testimonies, Volume 5, page 520, and from the whiteboard minutes of 1,483 and from Manuscript 21, 1895, these challenging words, quote, The sacred work of Christ that is going on at the present time in the heavenly sanctuary, the atoning work of Christ is now in progress in the heavenly sanctuary. And again, today he is making atonement for us before the Father. And so you can see that there is a big difference between what goes on in these two apartments. The first apartment is used to transfer the penitent sin into the sanctuary by the substitute. But the second apartment is for the purpose to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, thus to erase or blot out the sin. And this is what took place in the annual Day of Atonement. For on that day, two goats were brought to the door of the sanctuary. Let me turn to Leviticus 16, and there we will discover what the ancient priest did in the Most Holy on this Day of Atonement. I'm reading Leviticus 16 and verse 5. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering. Now notice, these two goats were brought to the priest, and lots were cast to see which one would represent the Lord's goat and which one would represent the scapegoat. In Leviticus 16, verse 8 and 9, we read, And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell, and offer him for a sin offering. Now you will notice that the Lord's goat was killed for a sin offering. And in verse 15, it tells us what was done with the blood of that offering. It says, and I'm reading, Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil. You see, he's carrying it now into the most holy. And what does it say? And sprinkle it upon the mercy seat 
and before the mercy seat. So the blood of the Lord's goat was taken into the sanctuary, into the most holy, and sprinkled upon the mercy seat in the second apartment, which now provided full and final atonement. But that's not all. Something happened next. In verses 20 and 21, I continue to read, And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both of his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. I like the way Ellen White writes about this in the book called Patriarchs and Prophets, page 356. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest, having taken an offering for the congregation, went into the most holy place with the blood and sprinkled it upon the mercy seat above the tables of the law. Thus the claims of the law which demanded the life of the sinner were satisfied. Then, in his character of mediator, mediator the priest took the sins upon himself, and leaving the sanctuary, he bore with him the burden of Israel's guilt. And at the door of the tabernacle, he laid his hands upon the head of the scapegoat and confessed over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, all of their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat. And as the goat bearing these sins was sent away, they were with him regarded as forever separated from the people. Such was the service performed unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. So, the final act took place on the Day of Atonement as the scapegoat is led into the desert, led there to die. Can I somehow picture this for you? We are looking at a man leading the scapegoat away from the sanctuary. Why is he leading him away? Because the scapegoat has on it the confessed and forsaken sins of God's people. Who put them on the scapegoat? The high priest. Why did the priest, where did the priest get these sins? Well, part of the sins he carried in his own body because he sometimes ate part of the sacrifice. And the others he got from the sanctuary. How did the sins get into the sanctuary? 
They were put there through the blood that was carried into the sanctuary by the priest. These were the sins that the sinner had confessed over the head of the substitute, thus transferring his sins to the substitute and then slain by the sinner. So now we can see that there are two steps that must be taken in separating sin from the sinner. First, the sin must be transferred from the sinner into the first apartment of the sanctuary. And the second step, there is a work to be done in getting those sins out of the sanctuary. Let me illustrate it in a crude way. In every city, there is a laundry. On Monday, you will usually find the people bringing their dirty clothes to the laundry. Why? For what purpose? To get their clothes washed. This is what a laundry is for, isn't that right? The clothes go in soiled, and they come out clean. And Paul uses this same figure of speech in Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 25, in which he says, Husbands, love your wives. And then notice, Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Why? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that Christ might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The sanctuary is a complete laundry service for the church enabling the people of God so that they can welcome the return of the Lord without fear. The church members are to be waiting for his return, fully washed and cleansed. You see, the sanctuary is God's laundry. But God can only wash and cleanse the sins that have been turned over to him. It must be our first business to be sure that our sin-soiled garments get into the sanctuary and that they are not left in our mind's dirty clothes hamper. And how do we do this? simply by accepting Christ as our Lamb, by repenting, by confessing, and by transferring our sins to Jesus Christ. Then we must go in faith to Calvary and behold the Lord Jesus shedding his blood for us. And then... We must follow our resurrected Christ by faith as he carries his precious blood into the heavenly sanctuary. But there is more. 
For there on the day of atonement, Christ as our high priest sprinkles his blood on the mercy seat, blotting out every trace of sin, which is finally transferred to the scapegoat. And like the laundry illustration, our garments come from the laundry spotless and clean. Now I have a big question. Why is it that the minute we confess our sins that everything is not cared for? Let me picture it in this way. I am holding a chalkboard and I write on this chalkboard the word S-I-N, sin. Can you visualize it and see it in your mind? That this represents the sin of a man who has come to the Lord Jesus to be forgiven. Now what does Jesus Christ do? The Lord takes the sin. He never wants the man to see the sin again. So Christ takes the sin into the sanctuary and sprinkles his blood over the sin. If you could look into the record of heaven, you would find that this sin is indeed covered with the precious blood of Jesus. The man is forgiven, and he is pardoned. And so now to illustrate, I take a handkerchief, and I hold it over the sin on the blackboard, and now you can't see the sin. Why? Because it is covered with a handkerchief. But underneath, the record is still there. Is that right? So now there is something further that must be done. The sin must be erased or blotted out. So I take the same handkerchief and I erase the record. And now... You do not see it anymore. Notice the two distinct words written in Psalms 32.1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Friend, when our sins are forgiven, they are covered. But you remember now our opening text of Acts 3, 19 and 20. Let me read it again. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. When? When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. Did you notice that Jesus, before he comes again, he is going to blot out the sins that have been covered, providing, of course, that you and I have met the conditions. Perhaps this is best illustrated as I read from Patriarchs and Prophets, 
page 202, in the experience of Jacob. I'm quoting. Had not Jacob previously repented of his sin in obtaining the birthright by fraud, God could not have heard his prayer and mercifully preserved his life. Now listen. So in the time of trouble, if the people of God had unconfessed sins to appear before them while tortured with fear and anguish, they would be overwhelmed. Despair would cut off their faith and they would not have confidence to plead with God for deliverance. But while they have a deep sense of their unworthiness, they will have no concealed wrongs to reveal. Why? Their sins will have been blotted out by the atoning blood of Christ, and they cannot bring them to remembrance. You know, I feel like shouting. I feel like praising God. This is what he's going to do. And so Satan, as I continue to read, leads many to believe that God will overlook their unfaithfulness in the minor affairs of life. But the Lord shows us in his dealings with Jacob that he can in no wise sanction or tolerate evil. All who endeavor to excuse or conceal their sins and permit them to remain upon the books of heaven unconfessed and unforgiven shall I read it? will be overcome by Satan. You know this brings us to another serious question. Why are sins not blotted out immediately when confessed? Well, again I must illustrate. Some years ago, this Adventist message came to the heart to the hearts of a father and a mother. Being impressed by the Holy Spirit that it was the truth, they accepted the message. But this father had been a great tobacco user. He had chewed tobacco since he was a little boy. In fact, he used to take it out of his daddy's pocket when he was but nine years old. So the habit had a great hold upon him. But when he accepted the gospel, he put away his tobacco. But again and again, the pull of that old habit would come upon him. His wife used to tell how he would take that plug of tobacco out of his pocket and throw it into the cornfield just as far as he could. And with renewed determination, start the day aright. But sometimes, right after dinner, she would look out the window and see him in the cornfield, walking up and down the rows. Now, what in the world was he looking for? You guessed it. He was looking for that plug of tobacco. But thank God the day finally came when he threw the tobacco away for the last time. 
And for the last 60 years, that man has had complete victory over tobacco. Thank God. Friend, there is power in the blood of the Lamb. You know, sometimes I miss those songs that we used to sing in that book, Christ in Song. Remember the words? Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory to win? There's wonderful power in the blood. You see, God didn't hide that plug of tobacco. Oh, he could have done that. But the man had to make his own decision and gain the victory through the power of God. So, you can see from the Bible passages we have read that God does not forever blot out our sins the moment we ask forgiveness. For he knows the struggle of man. He knows the power of sin. So he puts the sin into the sanctuary and covers it up. But if you want the sin back, God respects your power of choice. Let me read this to you in Great Controversy 357. The blood of Christ, while it was to release the repentant sinner from the condemnation of the law, was not to cancel the sin. It would stand on record in the sanctuary until the final atonement. So in the type, the blood of the sin offering removed the sin from the pendant, but it rested in the sanctuary until the day of atonement. In the great day of final award, the dead are to be judged out of those things which were written in the books according to the works. Then, by virtue of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, the sins of all the truly penitent will be blotted from the books of heaven. Thus the sanctuary will be freed or cleansed from the record of sin. Great Controversy 357. Don't you want to praise God? That's what he's doing up there now. As the time of refreshing of the latter rain is about to fall upon us, the Holy Spirit working upon our hearts, Jesus Christ is in heaven just before he comes to blot out our sins. You know, some people seem to be afraid of giving their hearts to Jesus. Why? I can't understand. They act as though they will lose their liberty. Let me tell you, friend, that the greatest liberty in this world is to be found in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. The great message of the sanctuary service can cure us from sin if we will accept its cleansing work. For by beholding Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary, 
we can sense more deeply the cost of sin. We are amazed as we look at Calvary. But when we see the work that Jesus is now doing in the heavenly sanctuary, we are even more astounded at the cost to God and his dear Son in separating man from his sin. The pain, the suffering on Calvary did not begin when they put the nails in Christ's hands and it didn't end when they laid him in the tomb. And this is why God wrote in the book of Hebrews that the blood speaks. The blood on the horns of the brazen altar has a message for you. The blood on the horns of the golden altar has a message for you. And the blood on the mercy seat has a message for you. And what is that message? It tells us that sin is so terrible that it broke Christ's heart on Calvary. Friend, the precious blood of Christ can cleanse us deeper and deeper until sin will have no appeal whatsoever to us. The reason why we continue to sin is that we still want to sin. In the book Steps to Christ, page 23, are these words. Repentance includes sorrow for sin, and then notice, and a turning away from it. We shall not renounce sin unless we see its sinfulness, until we turn away from it in heart, there will be no real change of life. Permit me to again impress this by a plain illustration. Suppose there's a hot stove in this room, and I put my hand on it and say, oh, it hurts, but I leave my hand there. What would you say? Well, I can tell you. You would say it must not hurt very much, or you would take your hand off of that stove. You see what I mean? The reason we go back to our peculiar plug of tobacco, our cherished sin, is that we have never actually sensed the cost of sin. Can you do something with me? Suppose we come to Calvary and seeing Jesus hanging on the cross, you say, Lord, I'm so sorry for you. Why did they drive those nails through your hands and your feet? And then you pause for an answer. And you hear him say, there is something that hurts me far more than these nails in my hands and feet. And you say, what, Lord? 
And then he says, it is your sins. Yes, friend, it's not the nails, not the crown of thorns, not the terrible beating that cause the pain in his heart. It's that critical tongue. It's that robbing of God's tithe and offerings. It's gossip. It's temper. It's indulgence of appetite and impurity. It is Sabbath-breaking. The fact that so many do not love him, that's what is breaking the heart of our Savior today. A mother came to a minister not long ago with tears in her eyes, asking that he would pray for her son. And between those broken sobs, she told of how her boy had lived a life of sin and eventually was put in the penitentiary as an unrepented criminal. Let me ask you, who suffers the most? That boy in the prison cell or the mother alone in her home? In her heartbreak, she cried out to the minister, Oh, pastor, pray for my boy. She couldn't think about anything else. Her boy was all that she was living for. May I tell you that Jesus Christ is working in the sanctuary only for the purpose of taking sin out of your life? Why? Because he bore your sin on Calvary. He has borne sin from the gates of Eden to this very present hour. And now in the sanctuary above, he continues to minister his blood for your sins. And he will continue to experience the pain until your sins are eradicated forever. But when we really see how the Lord suffers for our sins, we will want to do something about it. Is there a way to heal that mother who was weeping for her son who was in the penitentiary? Of course, there is a way. Suppose her son would sit down in his cell and write a letter to his mother and say, I've seen the terrible things that I have done. I have not only broken the law, but I have broken your heart. I have asked God to forgive me, and now I am asking you to forgive me. And from now on, by the grace of God, I'm going to walk straight. What do you suppose would happen to that mother? Would the pain in her heart stop? Oh, you better believe it would. Her tears of sorrow would be changed to tears of boundless joy. Listen, friend. It is written that there is joy in heaven over one sin 
one sinner that repents. Just now, as you behold your great high priest standing at the mercy seat in the sanctuary above, holding up his wounded hands before the Father for you, remember there is pain deep in his heart because of your sins. But by accepting Jesus as your personal Savior, you may bring joy to your Lord. For remember, he is able not only to cover your sins, but in these last hours before he comes, he can blot them out. It is only through Christ that the hands of sin can be broken. The bands of sin. Just now, would you bow your head with me and close your eyes? And together, can we not stand before the cross and make it personal? Look up at that blood-stained brow. Watch as he stands before the mercy seat, sprinkling his blood in your behalf. Isn't there something that you would like to say to Jesus just now? Of course there is. Tell him that you love him, that you are sorry that you have broken his heart. Tell him that you want to have such a hatred of sin that it will keep you from repeating the transgressions of his divine law. Will you not join with me in such a petition? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we have caught but a glimpse today of the pain in your heart and the work that you are doing now in the great day of atonement just before you come. Oh God, we pray that we may be living such lives and have made every provision in repentance and confession that you will find it possible to blot out our sins just before you come. Oh, we thank thee for such a Savior. We thank thee, God, that together with Christ and the Holy Spirit, you have envisioned this wonderful plan whereby we can be washed and cleansed in the sanctuary and ready to meet Jesus when he comes. Amen. Now I know you have been blessed as I have in preparing this simple explanation of God's great plan of salvation as revealed in the operation of the sanctuary. So don't miss our next study in which we will discover Christ, the Advocate. I just know it's going to help you 
to become an overcoming Christian. God bless. Amen.